So we're right in the middle of our lockdown series in Psalm 23, and we've reached the second half of verse 3, where David says, He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David now expresses this calm assurance that God is with him personally and guiding his whole life. So I want to think with you today for a few moments about the important subject of guidance. For many Christians, this can be a thorny and difficult subject rather than a positive one. How can I know God's will for my life? There are, of course, big practical questions in life, like where will I live? Or what will my job be? Or will I get married? And if I do, who will I marry? Ultimately, I think this is a question of confidence. How can I know that God is guiding me in my life? For some of us, there can be the reality of regret and a sense of what went wrong and how did I end up here? Is my life now doomed to be some kind of second best because I made a mistake at some point? And what about the difficulties we experience or the losses that we grieve? At times in our lives, we might wonder whether God has abandoned us rather than guided us. I think all of these questions are affected too by our own unique personalities and temperaments. Some of us crave to know details and feel anxious if things are not clear. Um, sometimes we can be so desperate to find the certainty that we crave that we get almost superstitious and obsessive trying to guess what the details in our lives mean God might be saying to us. Some decisions in our lives are obviously significant moral ones. And often it's the case that deep down we do know the right thing to do or the wrong thing not to do. But then we often find, don't we, that we were stubborn or, or weak or somehow overwhelmed. And, and, and we find ourselves making poor choices. And then, of course, there are millions of other daily decisions that are not so much moral ones, but just neutral choices that come down to preference and they're not right or wrong one way or the other. My point is that this is a big subject. And what David says here in Psalm 23 is of a great help to us. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is yet another wonderful expression of his confidence in God. David doesn't say here, I hope God will guide me at some point in the future. And neither does he say, I wish God would guide me now like he did at some point in the past. His own life experiences have brought him to the settled conclusion that God is here now 
in this present moment being the good guide of his whole life. All of it, in every part, the general and the specific, the, the destination and the journey, what David expresses here is a conscious, restful confidence in God's care for him in all things. So here's what we're going to do in the next 15, 20 minutes or so. I want to try and give you a two-part uh, statement that I hope summarizes what David says here. And we'll do the first half of this two-part statement at the beginning and the other half at the end. And in the middle, I want to try and give you four key ways that God guides his people. So the first half of our two-part statement, first of all, I want to say that God guides those who belong to him. I want you to be in no doubt that God promises to guide and does guide his beloved and precious people. This idea is what we might call a covenant blessing. By that, I mean that it's part of the deal. If you are God's, he has promised to guide you always. So David here is speaking as a believer and his logic is, I belong to God. I am his, therefore he guides me. I think the first question for us then is, how do I know that I belong to him? I, I want to suggest that everywhere the Bible teaches us, in all kinds of different ways, that our relationship with God will both begin and flourish with two key things. And I want to call them trusting and turning. We need to consciously come and put our trust in God's promises to us in Jesus in his death in our place and the hope of new life through his resurrection. This is what the Bible calls faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus. We also need to turn from ourselves and our own ways and our own wisdom in a sense and towards God and his ways and his wisdom. This is what the Bible calls repentance. And it's really significant in the Bible that these two ideas of trusting and turning, you can't separate them in the Bible. You don't do one and then the other. Everywhere in the Bible, these two responses go together. If we are going to begin and to live a Christian life, God calls us to faith and repentance, to turn and to trust. So the first thing to ask you now is, is this, has there come a point in your life where you have consciously turned from yourself and trusted in Jesus? If so, you belong to the shepherd and he has promised to guide you because you belong to him. 
But obviously a second question then arises, and it's this one. How does God then guide me in my life? I said that we would identify four ways here in the middle of how God guides his people. So let's work through these. Number one, God guides his people who belong to him by growing and developing their character. What I mean by that is that God guides us generally by gradually working wisdom into our hearts through the work of his spirit as we get to grips with his word, the Bible. Often in life, I think we care rightly about what we should be doing. But God is concerned with developing our characters. The way that God leads is not normally to give you a flash in the sky every time there's a major decision, but rather by gradually renewing your heart and impressing upon you a way of thinking and a set of values which are increasingly in line with his values. How does that happen then? We read earlier from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 of that chapter says, these words do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. In other words, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, but be transformed or changed as your mind is renewed by God. And the primary way that this happens in our lives is by engaging with God's word. As you read and reflect on God's word, God's spirit is at work within you. And you're learning to think about life in a godly way. You're learning who God is and who you are. You're seeing and sensing what God loves and what God hates, what God is like. And your faith and confidence in him is growing and being nurtured. Your values and attitudes are being refined and transformed to align with God's. There is no substitute for spending time in the Bible every day and cultivating your relationship with God. I, I wonder whether one of the challenges we face in this area is that we live in such an instant culture. We want everything now. And sometimes we forget, don't we, that the development of character takes time. But the first and primary way that God will guide you and I is by carefully and tenderly shaping our hearts like, like a master craftsman in all of the intricate detail as he walks with us in our everyday lives. A second way that God guides his people who belong to him 
is by placing them in community. So a second crucial thing here is that none of us are called to do all or any of this on our own. God guides me by grafting me into a loving community of other followers of Jesus. This is uh, a strange one at the moment in this, someone coined the phrase this week, a corona coaster of emotions. In these coronavirus times, we're of course isolated, but this truth still stands for us. The local church that we're part of is God's invention. And it's, it's God's invention for our good. And it's supremely crucial for healthy Christian lives for us to be intentional and committed to a real, tangible, imperfect, but Jesus-loving body of other believers. This takes clear and gentle leadership that is not controlling or manipulative, but it also takes willing and enthusiastic participation. There are many reasons why we might try to be loners. Fear of other people really knowing us. Maybe we have strong desires to be self-sufficient. But the truth is, we all need each other. We're in, 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 in our community, we're all at different stages of our lives. We're at different stages in our journeys of faith. And we can all learn from each other as we follow Jesus together and sit together under the goodness of his word. We're all called to be discipling each other all the time. He guides me by the example and encouragement and wise advice of other people around me. Sometimes it's true, isn't it, that other people around us can see things that sometimes we ourselves can't. And so we need each other to correct our extremes, to illuminate our possible blind spots, to sanity check our fantasies and, and, and crazy ideas, to, to relieve and help us to carry our burdens. When you have a hard decision to make, or you're struggling with some particular issue, talk to someone who knows you well. Ask a Christian friend, what do you think about this? What should I do in this situation? Ask them to pray with you and for you. A third way that God guides us is by directing our circumstances. God guides the people who belong to him by directing their circumstances. And friends, by this, I do mean even the hard ones. Today is never 
a temporary glitch in his care. Today is never a temporary glitch in his care. You know that in the Gospels, Jesus said that not even a tiny sparrow falls to the ground without your father's knowledge and care. And that our father in heaven knows the, the number of hairs on our heads. Well, that, that's not difficult in some cases at the moment because there's only a few. Sometimes, of course, our way can be hard. But I'm reminded here of someone like Joseph in the Old Testament. You remember Joseph and his technical dream coat? mistreated by his brothers and sold as a slave into Egypt, falsely accused of a crime and thrown into prison, forgotten by the Pharaoh who he later helped. So much injustice and hardship in his life. And yet God, in his sovereign will, had conceived and guided plans for his life that, that actually involved the redemption of a whole nation. God wasn't absent or asleep or losing control. Joseph himself could say to his brothers, at the end of it all, you can read this in Genesis chapter 50, you meant it for evil and yet God meant it for good. God guides his people who belong to him by directing all things for his glory and for our good. And he teaches us through our circumstances as we depend on him through all the ups and downs of our lives. I want to say one more thing on this. God guides the people who belong to him also, fourthly, by overruling their collapses. I use the word collapses because it begins with C and fits with the other three. But remarkably here, God also guides us through our failures. And here is perhaps the most perplexing question. What happens then when I fail? This is a question that's troubled many believers and thrown many into confusion. Because the idea is, in, in our minds, isn't it, that God only guides us when we're cooperating, and if we fail, it's our fault. And God then somehow leaves us to our own devices somehow. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying this to excuse failures. But I'm asking this question, do my failures mean that God has to change his plans for me? Or are my failures in some mysterious way actually part of his plans for me? Sin and failure is never good. God does not tempt us to sin or cause us to sin or want us to sin. But when we belong to him, two things are true. Our failures are not fatal. 
they can have consequences for sure, but they cannot put us outside of God's plans. God is still guiding us and teaching us, even in our failures. Think about Peter in the Gospels. Jesus didn't make Peter deny him. Jesus knew beforehand that he would. He warned him. And Jesus told Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. And after Peter's bitter tears, the Lord tenderly restored him. And Peter incredibly ends up leading the early church and writing parts of the New Testament. Perhaps Peter was even a better leader because of his experience of failure. And I'm sure that Peter, after he was restored by Jesus, could say very gladly that Jesus had been right all along. Peter's pride had been broken. His heart had been exposed for what it really was. And his dear good shepherd had led him where? Jesus had led him in paths of righteousness. And all of that happened, not because Peter was good, but because of the faithfulness of Jesus to him, in spite of his own foolishness. I'm not saying that failure is good, or that it has no consequences, it certainly does. But listen, do not allow past failures to rob you of this truth that God guides you now in paths of righteousness. If you belong to him, if Jesus is your saviour, even your sin cannot invalidate his care and guidance. There's one last clause here in Psalm 23, verse 3, that mustn't go unmentioned. And this is the second half of the statement we sorted that started with at the beginning. God guides his people, those who belong to him, and he does it for his own kudos. Whatever does that mean? David says here, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Philip Keller was a Christian author who was also a modern day shepherd. And he illustrates this principle beautifully, well, a bit savagely as well in one of his books. He tells how some of his neighbours in the rural countryside where he lived were rubbish shepherds. They, they thought they were great. They would buy a field. They throw a few sheep in. They, they let them run wild and forage till the land was parched and bare. And the sheep end up being weak and skinny and diseased. These wannabe shepherds didn't know what they were doing. And Keller's point is this. What does a weak sheep say about the shepherd? 
what David is saying here is that God, in the most incredible way, has staked his own reputation on this promise and truth. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. This means that he will not fail you. He cannot break his promise. He will not let you down. And in the end, this promise doesn't depend upon you. He will do it for his name's sake. He is faithful to you to display the riches of his own glory and kindness and grace. I was a little bit worried about doing this talk because I don't just want this to be like a seminar on guidance. What I'm really aiming at here is, is for you to see how great God is and what an absolute delight it is to belong to such a good and tender shepherd. I want you to trust him and turn to him and so belong to him. And I want you to know then that he promises to guide you, to lead you, to provide for you. He therefore grows you. He places you in a loving community. He directs your circumstances and he forgives and even works through your failures. So please get yourself grounded in his word. Do what is right. Avoid what is wrong. Learn to be wise. Encourage one another. Fix your eyes on Jesus and don't be paralyzed by fear. And never, ever give in to the lie that you are somehow living your second best life or some kind of plan B. God loves you and he will guide you through all the ups and downs of life as you trust in him. And he'll do it for the glory of his own name's sake. In a moment, we're going to close our time together by singing a song called He Will Hold Me Fast. But first, let me read to you the end of Romans chapter 8. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death 
nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.